It's one of those passages that, as a preacher, you kind of know this one's coming, and you kind of start to think about, what exactly do I think about that, and what am I going to say about that? This is the passage that deals with the temptation of Jesus, and that raises all sorts of interesting questions. As I was thinking through this and putting all this together, I think there were three words that really stood out to me that I would say are my takeaways from this passage. It's one, encouraging. It's very encouraging to know that, as we'll see, Christ was tempted and withstood the test, and therefore he can identify with us as we're tempted. It's encouraging. It's also a necessary text because it was necessary to demonstrate who Christ was as the Messiah. He was the last Adam. He was the Son of God. He was the true and lasting descendant. It's also a mysterious text. Mysterious because we're faced with this incredibly perplexing question that immediately comes up that many of you have thought about before, no doubt. If Jesus was tempted in his humanity, could he have actually sinned? If Jesus could have sinned, would we then be saying that God could sin? You see the problem. But if he couldn't actually have sinned, then well, was the temptation legitimate? Was it a real temptation if you actually couldn't do it? And so, hence the problem. And we're not going to go too far down that rabbit trail this morning, though it's a pretty fun little rabbit trail. Um, If you ever feel like chasing it, I'm here for you. And bonus points, this is called the impeccability versus peccability discussion about Christ. What do we think about this, and how do we put all this together? More on that in due time as we walk through the text. It's been a few weeks since we've been in Luke. I preached, uh, I preached Luke chapter, finished chapter three, and then David took a couple of Sundays. Then we had Easter Sunday where we looked at a resurrection story where Paul preaches a resurrection in Acts 17. And so we're back in Luke this morning, and we'll be here for a little while until we break for the summer and we look at Psalms in the summer. That's our tradition here at sunrise. So let me just catch you back up to where we are. The Gospel of Luke is one of four gospel accounts. You know them by now, I'm sure. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Luke is focusing really on two narratives at the beginning of his story, what's called the infancy narratives. He tells us about the birth of Jesus and also tells us about one of his relatives, the birth of John the Baptist. John the Baptist would be the prophet that would come and sort of pave the way for Jesus, his relative, who was the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. And so this is really the first three chapters, what's going on, and it culminates with introducing us to the ministry of John, John we call John the Baptist. His mama didn't name him John the Baptist. We call him John the Baptist because he was baptizing out in the Jordan River, and that's to distinguish him from other Johns in the Bible, such as John who's called John the Evangelist, who wrote the Gospel of John. And so John the Baptist is out baptizing And he is a bold prophet. He has a confrontational ministry. He's calling on people to repent. He's calling out hypocrisy. And people are coming to him to be baptized and to identify with the work that John is doing. Well, Jesus comes and wants to be baptized as well. And this story falls on the heels of that. Jesus comes and he wants to be baptized. And John at first pushes back and says, no, Lord, you should be baptizing me. And then they have this discussion and John eventually yields and he baptizes Jesus. I tell you that to remind you that something really unique happened 
when John baptizes Jesus. It says, the spirit descended down upon him, and it stayed. The spirit stayed. And so, that's helpful to remember when we come to Luke chapter 4, and we had that story, and then a genealogy, Luke chapter 4 and verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when it was ended, he was hungry. I'll read the rest in just a moment, but I just want to draw the clear connection here. He's coming up from the Jordan, the Jordan where he was baptized, and the Jordan River where he receives the Spirit upon him. And so we have this interlude of sorts that Luke gives us with this genealogy that's just before this. But really, chronologically, the stories are back to back. They're happening right together, and I think that's significant. So the Spirit comes upon Jesus in a unique way, and then we have this temptation event. A few things about the temptation, and then we'll jump into the specifics of what's going on here. There are a number of Old Testament connections with the temptation event. We saw that Adam and Eve did not withstand the temptation of the tempter who came to them. We're going to see in Jesus that he does. We see that when Israel eventually was heading out to the promised land, they go through the same river, the Jordan River. They're led by a man named Joshua, which Jesus' name in Hebrew, I'm going to let you guess what it is, Joshua. And so there's correspondence there. Instead of disobedience, though, what we have is a story of obedience. And so the parallels, you don't really have to be that much of a Bible scholar to see the parallels that are going on with Adam's story, Israel's story, and then Jesus' story. Israel wandered in the wilderness for how long? 40 years. Jesus is tempted for 40 days. And so we have another point of correspondence here. And immediately after Israel leaves the land of Egypt, they start complaining about being hungry. And what's the first temptation here? It has to do with hunger and satisfying his hunger. So we see this all throughout. There's so many points of correspondence. We're also going to see that there's a lot of correspondence with how sin is described in general in other contexts as well. For example, in 1 John 2, it says this, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. That's an interesting verse, and you see the three, desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Many of you probably learned this verse growing up as lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's not a wrong translation, but for us, the word lust immediately conjures up a negative connotation. Really, the word is more neutral. It's a desire. A desire for something can be good or bad. You can have a good desire that you fulfill in an ungodly way, and then in that way it becomes sin. And so that's the idea behind the verse. What's really interesting here, though, as we dive into this a little bit deeper, is there's a parallel between these threes, desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. When Eve was tempted by the serpent in Genesis 3.6, The desires of the flesh, she saw that the tree was good for food. This is good. Hey, I'm hungry. That looks really good to eat. It was a delight of the eyes as well, parallel to what John was talking about. 
the desires of the eyes. And then the pride of life, desired to make one wise. And so we see a parallel again here with these threes. Jesus, the connections in my mind aren't quite as clear, but they've been made. The first one is pretty obvious. He make these stones bread. You're very hungry. It's been 40 days since you ate. Make these stones bread. The desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes. He showed him the kingdoms and said, these can all be yours. And then the pride of life, testing God and subverting his plan. I know a better way. This was the temptation that got Eve. Hey, God's holding out on you. There's a better way to live. It is similar to what Jesus endured and faced here. So that's all background for us to see what's going on in this story here. So the temptations, simple outline this morning. Hopefully this will help us walk through it. We see temptation number one, two, and three, provision, power, and then ultimately protection. So let's read the rest of our text here. I'll read down through verse 13. Verse three, that's where we left off. So remember, he's hungry. The spirit has come upon him. He's fasted for 40 days. And then, verse three, the devil said to him, if you're the son of God, command this, this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up, and so that was temptation one. Number two, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him up to Jerusalem and set him in the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, it is, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Very, very interesting things happening here. The first temptation, let's look at it. We're told, again, that Jesus is hungry. It's been a long time since he ate. That's because he's hungry because he hasn't eaten for 40 days. Now, many of us don't really understand hunger in our world and civilization and culture. When we say we're hungry, it just means, well, probably about now for many of you. There's a certain danger in talking about food, you know, right bumping up against 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. For us, it typically means that, you know, the, the uh, granola bar you had or the bowl of oatmeal that you had is starting to wear off about this time of day. And you're like, I'm ready for a little something to eat. But in this time and context, it could take a long time sometimes to get food. I'm fascinated by some of the stories in the Old Testament, it'll say they were very hungry. And so they went out and slaughtered the sheep. Like, well, I've been a hunter pretty much my whole life and I've, I've uh, taken care of many a deer. And uh, it's not a fast process. And so the, the act of actually slaughtering an animal and field dressing it out and getting it prepared and then cooking it, you're talking you know, a few hours you know, at a minimum to make that happen. And so the scale is just totally different he kind of redefines what many of us would call hangry here. 
It's been a while. Some people get low blood sugar and get a little cranky when they haven't eaten in a minute. It's a reminder here that we are what theologians and people who study human nature, here's your big word for the day. We're a psychosomatic union, all right? Psychosomatic. It's just a fancy way of saying we are body and soul. We are body and soul. And you cannot separate out the two. We all know this. It's self-evident. Your moods are affected by what's going on in your body, aren't they? You can think about certain things right now, and you can feel the little butterflies in your stomach. You can make your blood pressure go up. You can make your heart rate go up. And of course, this isn't to, take any, any, to make any sort of excuse for sin. We're still responsible for the decisions we make. But it is to say that we should be aware in a particularly vulnerable state, sometimes when we're sick, we're not feeling well, we are particularly vulnerable. So a few weeks ago, we had spring break for our kids and we went away for a few days and it was great until I got the stomach bug. And I had my moment of worshiping at the porcelain throne and it was not pleasant at all. At one point, I asked this thing on multiple occasions, I've given you everything, what more do you want? (laughs) You have it all. At that point, and I had been thinking about this text for a little while, at that point, you... Your, your body is so depleted and, you know, had, had somebody come in and really wanted to have this kind of long, drawn-out, intricate conversation with you, my responses probably would not have been very holy at that point. You just, you just want it to stop. And you're, you're so consumed by what's physically going on in your body. And so I think that's really important thoughts for us to consider because what Jesus did... And what Luke is telling us he did is he he showed us something that's incredibly self-evident to us. He was absolutely at the bottom, physically, as a real human, as a man. He was absolutely at the bottom. And so he depleted himself. Now, I want to just take a moment here and say something, a couple of things about this. There are things in the Bible that are prescriptive meaning this is, you go and do likewise. There are things that are descriptive that tells us what Jesus did or maybe what some of the other apostles did and you're not meant to imitate it. So as application of this, I would not say go fast for 40 days and see if you can stand up to temptation. Bad plan, like just, just a bad plan. I knew of one pastor and he said whenever he would have a couple come to him for marriage counseling, he would tell them this, He would say, I want you to go home. I want you both to get eight hours of sleep a night for the next two weeks. And then I want you to call me if you still have problems. I think that's some very good advice. We are a union, body and soul. And we don't, we we need to consider that. And so here's the temptation of Jesus. What is the actual temptation? The temptation is to cure his hunger, this gnawing hunger, at this point, by means that the Father has not supplied yet for him. That's the temptation. I want to subvert God's plan. And what you'll see in all three of these, really, is the temptation for Jesus is to short-circuit the process, to not trust the Lord, to not trust his provision, and to go about it his own way. That's the temptation. 
Exodus 16.3, there's an incredible parallel here. It says this, And the people of Israel said to them, this is after they've been led out of the land of Egypt, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. And then they say this, there's some rich irony in this. We sat by the pots of meat and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out in the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They, don't, they can't find suitable water. They're not having the food that they want. And so they said, we used to sit, Egypt was so great. It was so great in Egypt. We used to sit by pots of meat. That's how awesome it was. Like, really? Do, do you ever remember things? And then you have a friend telling you about that memory and you're like, I don't remember it that way. That's not how that went. And we, we tend to have a selective memory. So they're in the middle of this trial, learning how to trust the Lord, and they are just completely remembering this in a wrong sort of way. It was so good to be overworked with unreasonable quotas by this infanticidal king who was trying to kill all our children. That's what they walked out of. But they remember it as, we're hungry out here and we had tons of food. It was great. It was great back in Egypt. It really wasn't great back in Egypt. And so the temptation is very parallel here. So is Jesus, what's Jesus gonna do? We know the answer, of course. Jesus doesn't give in. He doesn't give in. Verse five, verse four. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. There's something more important here than me satisfying my hunger. And that's that the word of God be upheld. And that's that I trust in the Lord above all else right now. Our friend Willie O'Destin, who's missionary down in Haiti, in Grand Guave, they named their ministry down there, Willie O and his wife Nicole, they named it More Than Bread, MTB, More Than Bread. And in Haiti, it's, they have a training center for pastors, and they do a lot of mercy ministry. Just want you to know that um, as I say this. They do a lot of ministry. They do a lot of help uh, for people. But they name their ministry more than bread because what they want to do, they're playing off of this, and they want to remind people that you could, go, you could go to eternal hell with a full belly or an empty belly. What we're wanting to do is supply pastoral training and the gospel message and ministry in Haiti. That's what they really want to do. It's more than just feeding mouths. Certainly, certainly we want to participate in that. Don't hear me say something I'm not saying, but it's more than that as well. Jesus could make this go away in a moment, but he chooses not to. He chooses not to. So that's temptation number one, that of provision. Let's look at temptation number two, power. Temptation number two. Starting in verse five, the devil took him up, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I'll give you all authority, this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I'll give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. So the question is that of authority. The second temptation as well deals with God's timeline. We know that Jesus is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the true sovereign king. But here's the temptation for Jesus in particular here. The temptation is, can we just skip to the end 
all right? So this whole ministry, this whole long ministry of being tested, sometimes not having a place to sleep and sleeping on the hard ground in the Middle East, being hungry, being misunderstood, being mistreated, watching my family get mistreated and misunderstood. Can we just skip all of that and let's just go straight to the end? Let's go straight to the end. This has a lot of parallel again with Adam and Eve in the garden. They're given dominion and they're given responsibility to take care of God's place, but they don't accept that. They want to adjudicate and decide justice for themselves. They want to make their own decisions. So what will Jesus do? Jesus is, of course, unwilling to shorten the timeline. And maybe this is where we get the phrase, making a deal with the devil. We probably, you probably heard that with movies and maybe music and books and so forth, or a devil's bargain. This idea that if you make a deal with Satan, you'll get something in return. It's usually you have to trade in your soul. There was a time where the devil went down to Georgia and he made a deal. That's a different story from a great theologian. <laughs> this deal with the devil. Let's just jump straight to the end. Let's just jump straight to the end. And imagine, imagine, you could make a case for this, couldn't you? Wouldn't you rather have Jesus in charge of the kingdoms of the earth? I mean, that's a good thing, right? What if Jesus was in charge of all the laws? Well, he would make better laws than what we have now. He would rule fairly. The system needs cleaning up. He could do that. He would be really good at helping with the economy, economic impact. I mean, what if Christians had all the power, all the economic power and leverage in society, and they did good with it? Like, that's a better thing, right? And so you could see how we could skip this whole crucifixion thing, and we could skip this whole messianic ministry. Let's just go straight to the end where I have all the power, and they lived happily ever after. We could see how that would be an actual real temptation. He deserved all the kingdoms, right? Weren't they his already? He's just the rightful ruler, just stepping into his role. What's really fascinating here, and it's striking, is that Jesus doesn't actually tell the devil he doesn't have that type of authority. Now, you always want to be careful making a point from white space in the scripture. I say that sometimes. But he doesn't tell the devil, you don't, no, you don't actually have that authority. He doesn't confront that. He just says, no, that's not how this kingdom is going to be established. What's his response then? Verse 8, and Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. You see, it's not an issue of the kingdom itself. It's an issue of worship. And he was not willing to worship the devil in order to get these things to come about. I want to pause here for a moment and just make some application for us. We can convince ourselves that we deserve all sorts of things and that if I had fill in the blank, then I would do good with that. Better than the person who has it right now. I'm leaving this very intentionally ambiguous so that you can sort of create your own ending here, all right? If I had that kind of influence, well, then I would do good. If I had that position, if I had that promotion, if I had this grade or that grade, if I had that type of recognition, then what? But what do you have to do to get it? Who do you have to flatten in the process? Are you willing to bend 
on that. I think that we are sometimes in danger of doing this very thing, of making our own devil's bargain, although we wouldn't spiritualize it quite in those terms. I think it's the, the root of it is actually the same thing. So temptation number two is that of power. Skipping the cross, going straight to the end, let's just, let's just not go through all of that. Lastly, temptation number three, protection. Now this one's interesting and maybe has, you may feel, as we read it at least, that you have the least connection with this one, but I think we actually do. So he took him to Jerusalem, obviously important place, this is verse nine, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So the... Satan here, the devil, he quotes scripture as he has done already, but he's twisting it and turning it into something that it doesn't actually say. There's three locations of the temptations here, which is interesting as well. The first one was in the wilderness. Matthew tells us the second one was on a high mountain as he looked out across the kingdoms. And the third is here at the temple, the religious hub of all of Israel. Any of y'all, have y'all ever done the trust fall? Anybody remember that one? We used to have to do that at camp. And I'd always look out and there's like, you know, a bunch of like early teenage boys that are like 84 pounds and they're supposed to catch me. I've never been a small person. So that was always concerning. So the trust fall works something like this. You would stand up on a table or a stage or something and you, you basically cross your arms and you just fall straight back and you're trusting these people to catch you. And they teach you all kinds of lessons about trust and things like that. It just never seemed like a great idea uh, to me. And maybe that's part of the reason I needed the lesson. (laughs) Inevitably, there would be somebody, usually a small person, which was kind of ironic, and they would kind of freeze halfway through and they would sort of try to sit, which makes it impossible to actually catch that person because you'd all stand behind them with your arms like you're standing, you know, across from each other and your arms like this. And then, you know, the idea is, hey, if everybody stands there together, we can catch this person, even though they're heavy. And, you know, we work together in teamwork and all of that. And I just never really trusted humans that much um, with my life as I'm falling backwards as a big fellow. This is sort of a, a divine trust fall game, if you will. He says, hey, go up to the top of the temple and just jump and watch what happens. This is going to be awesome because the angels won't let your foot hit the ground. They won't let you get injured. It's too early. It won't happen yet. And so it's this temptation to put the Lord to the test. Now, it would have been really interesting to live life as Jesus in his humanity, knowing that you're going to live until certain events occur. And so you would maybe feel maybe a sense of invincibility. I can do anything I want. I'm not going to die. Wouldn't that be an interesting way to live? It's some movies like over the years that have played that out. Like somebody, you can't kill them because they have this prophecy that's written about them. Maybe Jesus could have lived with some sort of abandon of all reason, doing unreasonable things, jumping off cliffs, jumping off the temple. But he doesn't. He doesn't. Because that would have been submitting to the devil's plan rather than submitting himself to the father's plan. Notice that it says, Satan went away until an opportune time. It doesn't actually stop. What I want to do with our last few minutes here 
is I want to I just draw out some observations in, on temptation and sin. And I have a total of 12 of these. I won't talk long about them, but I do want to bring these out. And this will be from our story that we looked at here this morning and also just some general observations about how sin and temptation work. Number one, temptation is not the same thing as sin. I want you to be encouraged by this because I think there's some people sitting out there today and you're frustrated because you're tempted. And you think, I should be over this by now. Has anybody ever had that thought? I have. You think, I shouldn't be angry about this. I should, I should be impatient. I shouldn't have these types of thoughts. I've been a Christian for 20 years, 40 years, 50 years. And you think, I should be past this. Well, you're never going to mature past Jesus. And Jesus was still tempted, and it was legitimate temptation. So, understand that. Just because you're tempted doesn't mean you've necessarily sinned if you haven't entertained that. When you cross that line from temptation to sin, that's a little bit fuzzier for us to try to draw out. But... I do believe there is that line. Number two, temptation does not have to win. Just because you have something in your life that has been what we could call habitual sin, sin that you do over and over and over again, it doesn't mean it has to be permanent. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says that no temptation has come except that which is common to man. It's normal to be tempted. And with a temptation, God provides a way of escape so that you can bear up under it. Just understand that the way out may be the way through, oftentimes, for temptation. It doesn't have to win. Don't give up. Number three, temptation exposes your heart. David has talked a lot about this as we've studied the book of James. Many of you will remember some of those lessons from James 1, James 4, and other places. Just take this out of your vocabulary. Nobody made you sin, all right? The devil didn't make you do it. When you say, you made me angry, they didn't actually. They just found the anger that was in your heart and they squeezed it out for you. You should thank them. They found it. It was already there. They didn't make you do anything. Temptation exposes your heart. Number four, sin is often fulfilling a good desire in an ungodly way. Fulfilling a good desire in an ungodly way. We could talk about this in a number of different ways. Most of the time when we sin, it's at the root, there's some sort of good desire, but it's being fulfilled in an ungodly way. Food is an easy one for us to do this with. Again, it's 11.14 now, dangerous talking about food. To have the desire to eat is a fine desire. There's nothing wrong with that. To eat three large pizzas, well, that's probably much. Desire for a donut's fine. Eating the whole box of donut holes, bad plan, bad idea. And so a good desire that's been corrupted, and you could apply this in any number of ways from uh, desiring money, desiring to make a living to support your family, that's good. Desiring to make a ton of money so that you can spend it on yourself and so that you can use that money in order to keep other people down and leverage it for ungodly purposes, well, that's bad. And so it's just universally true. Next, temptation can come amazingly fast. We need to understand, in the Old Testament, there were distinctions, just like we have. Crimes that were premeditated versus what we would call crimes of passion, things that happen amazingly fast. Have you ever been a little bit surprised at yourself how fast you got angry about something? 
Does anybody drive? Somebody, somebody cuts you off and then there's just something that wells up in your heart at this great injustice that they didn't let me over in the turn lane. Like, humanity's crashing. Like, what just happened? They didn't... It's amazing how you can just go about your day and it's, everything's calm and good and right and then something happens and it's like you find something in your heart and you think, I am sort of scared that this was there lurking and just waiting to be woken up. Maybe y'all don't drive. Maybe it's just me. Next, temptation is strong when you are weak. I mentioned this already, so I won't spend much time on it. We need to recognize our own weakness, especially when things like you're sick, when things hurt. We, we need to recognize that, that we are particularly vulnerable at those stages. That's why Jesus went through the ultimate of weakness and endured this temptation as the true, full, last Adam, human. He's human in every way. Next, temptation is often subtle, persistent, and progressive. One writer said it this way, most people don't first learn to praise gluttony and then start drizzling bacon grease over their second helping of chicken fried steak. It happens in reverse. You start to see yourself as either special or hopeless, and thus the normal boundaries don't seem to apply. It's subtle, isn't it? If you talk to somebody who's ever had an affair, they didn't start out with that. They started out with wandering eyes that weren't ever reined in. They started out by looking at pornography unchecked. They started out with entertaining little conversations here and there that should have been cut off and they knew it. That's how it starts. The devil's not going to show up with horns in a red suit. That won't work for you. I hope it wouldn't work for you. It's subtle. It's persistent. And it is progressive as well. I've often said that Pet sin is sort of like having a pet grizzly bear. It may be fine and cute and cuddly for a little while, but it will grow up and eat you. It's not happy staying small. It will take more and more and more and more until you don't even recognize yourself anymore if you give in to it. As John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. It's a battle. And if we're not engaged in the battle, you're losing. Guaranteed. Number eight. Temptation isn't new, but we have, may have new ways of surrendering. I'm thinking particularly about things like illicit material, pornography, things like that. Sexual sin is not new. Read the Old Testament. It's pervasive. What we have are some incredibly easy ways to access illicit material now. Cheating in business isn't new. There were unjust weights in Proverbs, often talked about actually. Now we've moved from dishonest scales to complex accounting schemes to hide profits, losses, liabilities, assets, those sorts of things. Temptation isn't new. The temptations, in fact, I would say, 1 John 2, lust of the flesh, desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride of life, they are still the same nature of the temptations that we're facing today. There might be different faces on that now. It's the same root. I would also say this. If you want to have an awesome advertising company, Get very familiar with those three categories and make commercials. That's what they're doing. They're tapping into human nature. What do you want in your flesh? And then they're just teasing that out. Next, the last few. Every desire you have is not good for you. I'm thinking particularly here, something that I'll 
I'll tease this out. In the month of May, I'm going to do a series on biblical gender. I'm thinking particularly about something like the LGBT revolution that's amongst us. And people say, I have this desire. And so therefore, God made me this way and I need to fulfill this desire. And I would just simply say this. Every desire that you have is not a good desire. Has anybody ever had a desire that wasn't good for you? I think we would all agree that's happened at least once. Every desire that you have isn't good for you. Next, number 10. Being sinned against doesn't mean that you've sinned. I want to mention this, particularly for those in a group this size and maybe listening in. Many have been victims of abuse, perhaps sexual abuse, and perhaps you feel a persistent uncleanness, dirtiness, even before the Lord because of something that's been done to you. I just want to say you have been sinned against and it doesn't mean that you sinned. Those are not the same thing. Please know that. Next, we've mentioned this already, but Jesus understands your temptations. He understands your temptations. In fact, Jesus understands temptation better than you because you failed at some point. He felt the full weight of temptation in a way that you never have because you've snapped. He's felt more than you will ever feel. This is why he went through this temptation event. And let's just remember the words that Luke ends us with. He departed until an opportune time. It's not like this was the only time Jesus was tempted. This is just a very specific season of testing that he went through. Lastly, please know and understand, Jesus died for your sins. All of them. All of them. He died for your sins. You don't have to hide. Bring it out. Bring it into the light. Jesus pays for sins. Our sins, they are many, but what? His mercy is more. Do you believe that? Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Some people, despite the number of times they hear something like this, maybe in the back of your mind, you think, yeah, but not me, not this sin, not this time. Oh, yes. Romans 8, 1. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your sins may be many. They may be many more than we realize. They may be many more than I know about. His mercy is still greater. You're not a better sinner than he is a savior. You can't do it. You can't out his grace for those who are in Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word and we thank you for the way it speaks to us so clearly. We thank you for the temptation that Jesus went through. And as this must have been so agonizing, being so physically weak and depleted, but to walk through this temptation so that he can identify with us. Lord, what an amazing reality and what amazing text we have before us today. Lord, I do pray for us as a congregation. First of all, I pray for those maybe that are listening in today or here this morning and they don't really, they've never really embraced Christ as their Messiah. They never really have sought his forgiveness. I pray that you would use your word, use your spirit, convict of sin, show them their need for Christ. And for those here this morning who are justified in Christ, who have received your righteousness through him, I pray that they would embrace that, that they would come to realize and understand they don't have to work. They are not guilty 
they are forgiven in him, we would be able to enjoy that today. We praise things in Christ's name. Amen.